Investors Chronicle. Companies and Market Show on the docket today. Sainsbury's is our result of the week. Alex Newman talks through his latest long read on the lessons to be learned from the world's greatest investor, a.k.a. Warren Buffett. And new IC writer Mitchell Labiak joins us to talk about the quote-unquote warehouse bubble. All that and more, let's get going. Welcome, welcome, listener. Nice to have you with us again. Thursday, 5th of May, as we record. Um, some important housekeeping before we get going, because we're delighted to announce that we've, we've made a new signing on the pod. IC Deputy Editor Dan Jones has joined the pod for a um, checks notes undisclosed fee uh, and will be sharing hosting duties with myself. Glad to have you on board, Dan. Medical pass contract signed. Debut yep. is all that's I'm left. Uh, raring to go. Thank you for having me. Well, uh, yeah, break a leg to mix my metaphors. Um, also on the panel this week, Julian Hoffman. Hello. Hello there, everyone. Hiya, hiya. <laughs> Uh, and another first-timer, new IC writer, Mitchell Labiak. Hello. Hello. Hello, listeners. Uh, what, what's, your, what's your sort of beat, Mitch? Uh, my beat is the property sector, so all things commercial and residential property. That's, that's my bag. Lovely, and we'll be getting into some warehouses a bit later. Is that yeah, it? yeah, that's, that's my jam. That's the jam. Sure. Lovely stuff. Uh, Alex Newman also joining us a little later. Uh, quick news roundup before we get on uh, with the pod. So uh, some selected companies updates for the week. A few fashion lines. Uh, tears for Boohoo as profits dropped after a year of high freight costs, subdued demand and customer returns. The group has reported a 94% fall in statutory pre-tax profit, despite revenue rising by 13%. Meanwhile, Jules shares slipped by 36%, landing at an all-time low after announcing a double whammy of a profit warning and the departure of Chief Executive Nick Jones. Uh, from brogues to beers, sales at JD Weatherspoons exceeded pre-pandemic levels at the end of its latest quarter. Uh, and Chair Tim Martin said the company would break even this financial year after heavy losses during the pandemic. And from beers to barrels, BP has both increased its buyback programme and given the UK government uh, a forecast local spend out to 2030 of £18 billion. Uh, meanwhile, Shell has tripled its March quarter adjusted profits and also looks set to increase its buyback volume later in the year. Oil majors' continued record profits have led to more chatter about a one-off windfall tax, though so far Business Secretary Kwasi Kwarteng has contented himself with, with writing to oil bosses uh, to insist profits are reinvested in the UK. We've got lots more company stuff on the IC website, and I should also flag up our daily trader email that gets all of these updates sent straight into your inbox. It's free of charge. Details will be in the podcast description. In other news, fed up. That's not Alex Newman after writing 3,000 words on Warren Buffett last weekend, but the latest central bank movements. A 50 BPS interest rates rise in the US from the Fed uh, yesterday, with the Bank of England following suit and uh, a 25 uh, basis point increase. And finally, some gossip. A mini feud between Elon Musk and Bill Gates has been has been a brewing. Last week, Musk accused Gates of, quote, shorting Tesla while claiming to support climate change action. This morning, in an interview with the BBC, Gates claimed any Tesla bets have nothing to do with climate change, did not deny he was shorting the company, and was a bit cagey about Musk's potential impact on Twitter. Uh, it's not exactly Ali versus Frazier, but something to keep an eye on. That's all from me, all from our news roundup. Over to you, Dan. 
Thanks very much, John. So, yeah, we're going to start the rest of the podcast with our result of the week, as is traditional. This week, we're looking at Sainsbury's, ever topical, particularly right now, of course, uh, coming off the back of interest rate rise and the Bank of England's uh, inflation report talking about pressures on the UK economy. Obviously, Sainsbury's had a very good 2021, following Tesco reporting a bumper set of results. But, but the big focus is really on how it's going to manage the challenges of this year, uh, balancing rising input costs with price wars, really, and you know, uncertain consumer demand. I think there's also some questions over the challenges Sainsbury's in particular faces in comparison to the likes of Tesco and, and the discounters, on the other hand, as well. Julian, you covered the results for us this week. What, what was your what was your kind of take, sort of overall take on on Sainsbury's performance and its its outlook as well? Oh yeah, thanks, Dan. Well, yes, it was my great pleasure to cover Sainsbury's. I'm old enough to and have worked long enough in journalism to remember when the Qataris were going to buy this for 580 a share back in 2007. Um, it's fair to say that uh, shareholders won't be looking at anything near that like that return. The results themselves were. <laughs> They weren't bad in in on a sort of line by line basis. They were okay. So the main thing that people took away was that uh, the company hasn't given back the performance that it generated in in the, during the pandemic. So basically, sales and everything are flat, uh, which means that as the costs of uh, the extraordinary costs that the pandemic imposed fall away, there is a sort of a measure of of profit that it's managed to hold on to. So that's that's a kind of positive thing. Traditionally, the big grocers also benefit from price hikes um, or price uh, input inflation. Um, they can generally hand that on. And the other thing to note in the sector as well, that there doesn't seem to be much sign of the sort of discount wars that uh, plague the companies uh, in the sort of 2000s and 2010s, even though the discounters like Lidl and Aldi are definitely a threat to uh, to everyone's sort of bottom line. but. The main thing that that uh, we we took away from it is that they're they're kind of performing okay on an operational level, but they do have some sort of deeper issues once you start to look at the balance sheet in more depth. And uh, what what I did was to look at what they're investing in the business as opposed to what the the value is is depreciating slowly out of it. And uh, that ratio is still hovering around fifty percent. So they're essentially about half of their business is is depreciating away. It has to do that because they're they're very close to their covenants in terms of the amount of debt they can carry. So they they have to deleverage now in order to bring that under control. Uh, it's it's a sort of it's it's a, a catch twenty two situation. You either you won't notice it, I don't think, in the shops in that you know the, the the light bulbs will get changed and the painting will be done. But it's how much it takes away from the long term prospects of the business. And I don't think personally, that they can run that for much longer. I think they're going to have to start uh, investing in the business. And actually, next year, they're forecasting that they'll put about 700 million to 750 million back into it versus a depreciation rate of about 1.2 billion. So there, there's definitely a huge gap. So I also noted in the article that if you look at the comparison for Tesco, Tesco runs about 1.2 billion in investment versus about 1.4 billion in depreciation. So there's there's definitely a there's definitely a very big gap there. I think you mentioned catch twenty two situation, and that that probably applies in more ways than one. Obviously, the balance sheet is a, is a a big medium term issue. In the short term, as you touched on, 
you know, you've got the, you've got this balance between you know wanting to maintain margins, wanting to maintain market share. But equally, you don't want to have a situation where you're, you're you're forced to raise prices, you know, far too high. But you know, despite the fact input costs are, are really going up as well, it seems to me that as you say, there's not necessarily that much sign of a price war yet. But there's perhaps you know some rumblings and. If you're Sainsbury's and Tesco's, you want to avoid the mistakes of the you know a few years back when they effectively allowed the discounters to really eat into that market share by by not competing on price, and therefore that means right now they've got to you know wear these high costs and keep prices low at the same time. It's essentially they they could just about carry it. I mean the the, the one area that was a big deal, I think that came out a few months ago when when Asda was taken over. Was that the uh, the people who own Asda were not going to compete on fuel prices? I think a lot of people took that as a sign that there is an unofficial truce about pricing wars, and it, it, indeed you can sort of see that that's rolled out across all of the supermarkets. So I mean, my if if you go to your local garage now, the price is more or less the same as you would find at the the local supermarket. And, in fact, down the road, the, the local uh, petrol station where near where I live, uh, and this being Devon, it also sells a, a variety of tractor parts. Uh, the the price of the petrol is exactly the same as if you drive twelve miles to the nearest uh, Sainsbury's or Tesco, and that is a sign. I would take that as a sign that they've got that they're going to keep margins up in one area, uh, and that might allow them a little bit of leeway in terms of cutting their core prices or their core offering but uh, there isn't they just don't have a lot of of, of wiggle room um at the same time as as carrying um far more costs than you would find at your average Lidl or or aldi and and i, I think that's just a structural problem but yes yeah, you know sainsbury's fundamentally is a very well-known and great brand in that you know it still attracts the kind of middle england shopper that regards tesco's as a bit down market but can't really afford to shop at Waitrose every week. So it's got it's got a niche. It's just really a case of whether they can power through the next couple of years and, and rebuild the strength of the balance sheet by deleveraging and at the same time not allowing the business to to depreciate in such a way that it becomes irrecoverable. But um, I think we're a long way from anyone wanting to buy it on a, you know, it's, it's cheap, but it's it also needs an awful lot of investment if you were to buy it. Just on that note, obviously Tesco, relatively cheap as well, a little bit more expensive, which probably reflects, you know, obviously all supermarkets have had a good couple of years. The the tailwinds are well known, but but Tesco has really sort of grown its market share a little bit, uh, and probably isn't dogged by the same operational issues. It seems to me as Sainsbury's is is that a fair kind of comparison? And you know, yeah, I mean Sainsbury's has been a basket case in many ways for a long time, so it's not that isn't in a sense on its own that isn't a surprise. You know, Tesco seems to have sorted out their act a bit quicker um, after the sort of day uh, after the accounting and uh, supplier pricing scandals that they had. It, they can sort of it can sort of exist as it is for quite a long time, but the question then becomes: Well, where do you get the value out of it? I think that's is it is it worth the value? Is is the discount reflective really of its sort of diminished status, or is there a possibility that it might recover to the average for the sector? I mean, that's that's really where we are really. The, you mentioned the Qataris, uh, you know, uh, a long time ago now, 15 years almost, I suppose. Um, but the bid speculation has always been there with Sainsbury's, particularly in the last year, given what we saw with uh, Morrison's and Asda as well. That's kind of faded away a bit this year. No, Once again, no no bid was forthcoming. How do you sort of see that, that perennial kind of question hanging over Sainsbury's? 
I, I, the, the problem is if you if you're going to bid for the company, you're not you're not just buying the value of the company. You're buying a company where the debt is almost the same as level as the market capitalization. I, I don't know whether they'd be interested in it at the moment. It, I think they need to. I think they need to, to leverage it a bit more. And then you might see a private equity player come in. I mean, it's a difficult one. I, 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 yeah, you kind of we wonder if it's at the stage where it's no no price is too cheap for it. I think that's the that all prices are too expensive, no matter how cheap they actually are on paper. Yeah, I think it remains a wait and see, as it has done for for some time. <laughs> uh, well, the last fifteen years, basically. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> on the on the subject of deal making, uh, something a bit more concrete. Uh, someone who has been making deals again and making purchases is a uh, Warren Buffett. Uh, who is the subject of our cover feature this week, uh, which appropriately timed given the Berkshire Hathaway AGM uh, last weekend. That was the first in-person AGM for a couple of years, and that was also uh, quite well-timed. I'm sure uh, Buffett and co. will consider uh, that to be the case, given the way their performance has really rebounded, their their returns have, have really accelerated again over the past year. The drivers for that, to a certain extent, are quite obvious. You know, we've seen a shift away from some of the growthier parts of the market, given the rising inflation, rising rates in the US. Alex Newman today wrote the the cover feature, looking at Buffett and his style and what what we can learn from him, and and you know various thoughts to that end. Uh, Alex, what, why don't we sort of start by just I suppose summing up what what's what's changed or perhaps what's what's uh, driven Buffett's return to form in the past uh, few years again. Um, so I suppose the context is the last few years of Berkshire performance. I mean, they they lagged the S&P actually quite well against the index post-financial crash. Uh, but they were really in the shade, you know, in the slightly delirious run in, in US equity markets after the, the COVID crash. So I mean, that was really completely to be expected because Berkshire didn't have the concentration of so-called pandemic winners and tech stocks that the, the index had. So it was always going to suffer by that rather heady comparison. But at the same time, you know, there are a few few people who, who doubted his his conviction and, you know, whether he still had the, the magic touch. So he made a, a pretty bad bet and a pretty large one as well on a, a company called Precision Cast Parts, which which required a big write down in the sort of the, the eye of the storm of the pandemic. He had another bad bet on uh, airlines that went awry and before that there was the failed back backing for um craft's takeover of unilever but i mean net net it was kind of just fairly stodgy u.s equity market growth over the last decade so to to, to bring it up to speed as as you said i mean he has kind of emerged from the the shade of this this all-conquering u.s equity tech-led equity story because he's built he's built a portfolio of companies and of stocks um, that is much better at weathering um, a high interest, high inflation environment, and that's been borne out by the the relative performance. I think it's something like seventeen percent compared to the S and P over the last year. But uh, on almost any any time frame over the last twenty years now, he is he is um, ahead. So uh, yeah, that's that's the context to to Buffett's bounce back or whatever Pith, pithy. Uh, Phrasing, which I'm glad you guys, you guys didn't run with. Well, in the end, we went with an interesting, I think, graffiti uh, angle. Yeah, really capping his kind of return to form, which, as you say, is is relatively short term, but you know, he's got the backing of multi multi uh, decade success as well. Uh, as as I mentioned, you know, he has been been active again, buying, topping up on a lot of holdings, uh, making some new purchases as well. Maybe if we want to talk about them a little bit, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we talked about it in the last few weeks as well. I mean, Julian covered a few weeks ago. He bought a uh, a kind of a Berkshire-like insurance to toy manufacturing conglomerate called Allegheny for $11 billion, um, which he has admired for a long time. He has uh, bought into HP, which is a, is a kind of classic Warren Buffett, slightly boring industrial uh, style cash generating kind of annoying company almost you know the printer cartridges people need them they you know you know they're not necessarily innovating there but they it's a reliable um it's it's a reliable cash generator and a product that 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 people need but yeah like you said i mean he is he's been topping up his holdings he even topped up some of his his apple his enormous apple stake in in the first quarter he's gone he's sort of doubled down on the oil and gas bet that he's been quite bullish about over the last couple of years i mean you can read a few a few things into into him going back into the market but i mean for me i think i think the most important thing it, it sort of it shows is that you know there's this need to put capital to work because his enormous cash pile is in real terms being eroded away quite quickly by the level of inflation we have so he's not only gone big into u.s equities in the last few months, but also doubled down on, on on U.S. Treasuries, and and then at the same time there is this just U.S. consumer play which he's built his entire career on. So um, so yeah, those are some of the themes. I think. Buffett has probably explicitly said, I'm sure, in the past, you know, he'd hate to be, you know, he would not want to be termed and does not see himself as a macro investor. But it's still quite hard not to see this kind of purchase as you know, vote of confidence in the U.S. economy. All right, he's got his cash pile that yeah you know, needs to be used, but equally, you know. He's backing these businesses, and they're coming from a range of different. I suppose it just shows the diversity of you know the U.S. market that he can put all this money to work at a time when a lot of other parts of the market are really struggling. Yeah, yeah. and I, I mean you know he 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 makes that point often that you know they don't like to take a macro picture, but obviously that feeds into any of their capital allocation decisions. But I suppose his spin on it is that it's always business focused, so. He's always thinking about the return on capital that a business can make rather than the valuations of the the market as a whole. You know, that is where arguably in moments like this where stock picking expertise comes into its comes into its own rather than just buying the market. So um so yeah, I mean, well that was you know, they talked about inflation. I sat through a couple of hours of the mammoth AGM on Saturday, and that was one of the um I mean inflation came up a great deal. So, you know. It's on their minds, however way they present it. And from from the UK investors' point of view, you know, looking perhaps a bit more closely at this style again right now, given you know the inflation worries we all know about. Suppose they have two choices really, as we touch on in the piece. You know, obviously Berkshire itself is you know uh, accessible, but but equally, you know, there are some parallels with the its holdings and the makeup of the the FTSE 100, really. So yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the A shares aren't that accessible. Unless you have five hundred thousand dollars, you can obviously buy the the fraction fractional B shares. But yeah, I mean, in terms of comparison, and you know, no fan, no financial advice given here. I still uh, there is a distinction, I suppose, even though the kind of companies he backs are have some parallels with the mature, stodgy UK blue chips which dominate the FTSE one hundred. I mean, he's still back in the US economy, which, as opposed to a UK slash multinational flavor that the FTSE 100 has and yeah I mean if if I was forced to choose which horse to back to to back I mean I think the track record shows that the US economy you know for all its problems and 
you know longer term that is it's hard to see that under uh, uh, um underperforming uk europe rest of world um there we but, have it. yeah he may not be around for the next 70 years well we'll, we'll come to that uh, <laughs> shortly because i'm sure he won't be even by uh, um his uh, standards of longevity uh julian uh, i just want to maybe get your thoughts on on buffett on his investment style you know you you look at some us portfolios for for the ic what's your kind of take on his his position yeah, his, I, I think, uh, his longevity is amazing i think he started investing just before the start of the Boer war but um <laughs> it's it, uh, it it kind of plays to what he's interested in really and it isn't just valuation grounds i don't think i, mean, I think it, yeah he's essentially goes for companies that have a lot of market share in a very particular area so the the, the exception to that would be allegheny but i think we drew the 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 conclusion that that was partly um, an inflation play. So uh, Buffett's buying into into the conglomerate model. I think that's how we would best describe it. So, you know, if you were, if you could remember investing in the 60s and 70s, if you look back at the history of it, you know, conglomerates started appearing because they were a reaction to, um, in, in you know, insidious kind of inflation problems. So uh, there is a, as much as I mean, Alex touched on it. As, not, as much as he kind of denies it, he is actually buying a um, a macro theme. I think that's that's the conclusion we could draw from it. And and the the type of companies he buys, that they all have pricing power in them. I think, and uh, that's the other defining feature of all of his investments that that they they seem to be able to match what they can charge to what the current cost of the of doing businesses so um, you know insurers are a very good example of that uh if you're a specialist manufacturer of you know allegheny also makes gravestones uh <laughs> for american cemeteries yeah. uh, that's never going to go out of business um so it, it, there is that there are i think an emerging sense that he's playing the wider trends i don't think that they, on their on their own, that's just a stock picking choice that he's making. Yeah, I, 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 w- I would say the one caveat here is the oil and gas thing because I mean he he likes to buy businesses for a very long term, and the, the oil oil and gas earnings we've seen like from Shell Shell's results this morning they're absolutely in the the ascendant. They're making buckets of of money, but it do, doesn't really seem in keeping given the you know the the regulatory and climate. Um, obstacles which have you know faced those those companies are pretty profound on the on a kind of 10-year um basis if not sooner so i think that is an interesting play that seems a much a much more trader like um approach he's taken there um but yeah i mean like chevron's still going to be around in 10 years in america so long term yeah as you say as a uh, man in his 90s i mean there's a, there's a degree of <laughs> That's a good i mean point. Uh, we, we we've got to move on but it is quite interesting i think that uh that conglomerate point that you know what happens after after buffett goes you know six months ago it seemed like you know the conglomerate was a thing of the past you had that week where Toshiba, johnson johnson ge all said they were going to split up now you know again inflation concerns to the fore and and you know uh buffett's buys make, makes you think maybe they've got a bit you know bit more life in them after all but but the question for Berkshire will be after he goes you know will there be you know, more calls to split it up so I suppose that's we'll just have to wait and see um when that fated day comes um but yeah we, we are going to move on uh just for time purposes uh, this is a story actually that was in last week's IC written by Mitchell our new property writer and it proved quite auspicious I think <laughs> 
I love to be able to say that I I predicted um, Amazon's profit warning, and that's why I wrote this <laughs> this one thousand three hundred word feature. But um, I mean, really, you, you know, you, you could have that that you could have published that feature six months ago, and it would, you know, the, the same warning signs would have been there. It it just so happens that yeah, Amazon's profit warning has has come up. So. Yeah, just just to. Um... To give a bit of context, this is the the feature on warehouses and warehouse reach, try to tax big box, that kind of thing. Looking at, you know, obviously they've had a fantastic amount of interest over the past few years. Looking at, you know, whether that interest is effectively, you know, starting to to bubble over. And then, you know, a couple of days after that piece was published, we had, had Amazon said that it had overextended itself in terms of its own warehouse capacity for for obvious reasons to an extent, given the sort of outsized demand you saw during the pandemic, but that it was now scaling back. And obviously you've seen a a fall in some of these valuations over the past few days for the likes of Tritech, that kind of thing, on the back of that comment from Amazon. Yeah, we have. Although, like, it's 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 important not to sort of over overstate it because you know some of those um, shares have since recovered a little bit. But I, yeah, I think it it was a sign that yeah, all is not completely rosy. I don't think the bubble is has has burst or anything, but I think you know more people are asking the question about. Deflated was was a word I uh, I saw someone else another um, property commentator use sort of yeah the bubble was kind of deflating a little bit um, people realizing that the the market won't you know the party can't last forever you know you can't you can't keep building warehouses at the at the at the level to which um, we've been building them for the past few years and expect those warehouses to be leased all of the time yeah I think as as you say is kind of it shows. Maybe what's happening in a lot of sectors, you know, the the price for perfection, you know, it just takes a little thing. I get Amazon is a big uh, tenant, um, big driver, but you know, it takes one comment to to wipe, you know, a decent amount off in a few days. Okay, prices today, this morning has been a bit of a rebound, but but there's yeah, you know, people are starting to reconsider almost all their positions now in this kind of environment. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a really difficult one to predict. So on the one hand, of course, Amazon is. It is it is a big player. Um, it's it's twenty five percent of it was twenty five percent of the UK market um, last year, and it was twenty four percent the year before that, or or some, something thereabouts. Um, the warning signs are already there in a way because the the data we refer to in our piece they were three percent of of the market. When I say the market, I mean newly leased space. Um, so take up as it's referred to by property types, property nerds like myself. Um, but they were, yeah, they were 24, 25% of take up the last couple of years, and they were 3% this first quarter. So they've already been slowing down. Um, the profit warning indicates they're going to arguably slow down further. I suppose the reason why it's, uh, why some people are reading more into it than just Amazon, reading the whole market into it, is aside from the fact that Amazon is, you know, huge, a huge tenant, it's presumably the same pressures that Amazon are under as an e commerce company. Other large e-commerce companies are also under, and if it's not Amazon, you know, Amazon is twenty-five percent of the market, but e-commerce as a whole is most of the market. Like this, this is why the warehouse sector has boomed. It's been driven by a, a rise in online shopping, and if someone like Amazon says, "Well, we actually need less space than we first anticipated to service that demand," or we less need less new space than anticipated to service that demand for online shopping. Presumably, that will be a very similar situation for other companies. So this is why these these big warehouse developers are taking a hit. But they're still, you know, I think um, Tritax, you know, in, in, in the same, almost the day after its share price dropped, it was able to put out a result saying that it's had the 
biggest, I think it said the biggest Q1 on record for, for new take-up and a 100% increase on the year before. So it's not it's not like the wheels have come off, um, but it is, uh, yeah, it's 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 certainly, it, it raises questions about sort of the sheer amount of speculative development, I suppose, that's going on. Yeah. Um, I think, as you point out in the piece, there's plenty of tailwinds still there. Mm. Uh, one... One which really reminded me this whole scenario of, you know, when you look at elevated valuations, how long can it go? Until this year, you know, you had a similar kind of question hanging over government debt, UK gilts for many years. But uh, one parallel was, you know, there part of the there was a structural buyer really in the shape of pension funds and overseas investors looking for safe assets. And and you touch on in your piece, you know, the foreign interest, the foreign investor interest in this asset class is still really strong, which which should provide, you know. There's a certain degree of price insensitivity there, even. Yeah, exactly. I mean, one one of the people I spoke to was um, for the piece uh, was essentially saying that it it's it, it's just a place to put your money. It's you know it's it, it's it's still warehouses are still the safest bet in real estate, probably in terms of a, an asset class. They're still uh, a, a safe place to put your money. But I think it's it's the assumption that every bet on warehousing is is a good bet or that any amount of money is a decent amount of money to pay that i think is uh should have been questioned 6 months ago but is definitely being questioned now so it's yeah i think it's it's still a, a sensible investment it's a, it's a question of how much money though i think that's the you know with with investment yields decreasing to to 3.25% which is the lowest figure on record the the question was always going to be they they can't keep decreasing forever and the amount of money being invested into these warehouse assets can't keep increasing forever. There has to be a point where uh, um, that sort of, at the very least, levels off. Um, yeah, especially yeah. as yields elsewhere are finally starting to rise a little bit. Mm. Uh, Alex, you obviously uh, were a property coverage, uh, were a, the property correspondent for a long time. Do you, you kind of agree with that assessment? How do you see the, the market? Yeah. I mean, to- totally. I mean, Mitch will cover the, the big points there. I suppose the, the thing that you'd always hear um, from the warehouse landlords is the how small a portion that the rental costs may actually make up for the um, for the tenants. So it's single it's single digit often, isn't it? That they're, depending on the scale. Of yeah, these. yeah, it can be. Although this is this is. I mean, I'll, I'll let you make your point. But no, no, no. I was going to say, and that's and on that basis, they you know that. Hence, all the bullish projections we mm. can raise. You know, we can raise rents year after year after year. But open market rent reviews. Um, it's it's kind of going to be rosy, but it's rosy until it isn't. It's rosy until it isn't, and it's not the case. Absolutely, I I've heard because I speak to many warehouse developers in my in my previous role and also in in this role. I speak speak to a lot of warehouse developers, and they say the same thing. It's only it's only a fraction of their overall cost of doing business. But um, there are instances where Paul Weston in the piece pointed to. You know, there was a. They had a tenant who was in a certain prime logistics location in London, and they had to move out because they couldn't afford the rent. Now that's a that's an exception. You know that 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 is an exceptionally high level of warehousing rent. But the point is, it does happen. So it's. I think I think it's not an it's not good enough really. I suppose for warehouse developers to sort of wave that concern aside and say, oh, actually, they you know. The uh, the the rental costs aren't aren't a big part of doing business. I think for some smaller players they are, and so we can't keep. It, it is a question people have, which is well, yes, the the supply and demand dynamics. You know, vacancy rate still being at a record low. You know, the amount of empty warehouse space is still at a record low. Take up is still at a record high. 
the supply and demand dynamics would would imply that rents have to keep increasing, but there, there comes a point where some companies just just can't pay that. So you have to um that that has to be factored in at some point. As much as warehouse developers would like not to factor that in, because all of the other metrics are showing that they can increase rent and they can build based on the assumption of that increased rent. But um but it's not it's not always the case. And yes, yeah, it's a really good point. And you know, you look at Amazon. I mean, we think of them in in kind of um, you know they're a sort of behemoth. You know, uh, they are they have such a huge position that you can sometimes forget their margins are wafer thin as well. That actually they make them a point where they they have less wriggle room when it comes to to rents, and also they have this huge position where in some of the the, the mega boxes. I mean, who what kind of replacement tenant uh, is a landlord going to find if you get to a kind of crunch talk point? You know, if we have a if we have a big recession and they're, they're coming up to their, their market rent review suddenly the tables turn a bit yeah it's a difficult one and i think it's it is at that point it's it's, it's important to differentiate between sort of speculative development and what's known as build to suit so a lot of the safer developers like you know arguably your your seagros and your um your prologuses will will do will do build a lot more build to suit development so they'll build something They've already got a tenant lined up. The tenant has already said they're going to take it for 20 years. So that's 20 years of income sort of sorted. Um, where you get a bit more dangerous, where a lot of speculative development happens. Um, this is obviously where the, the margins are bigger and the potential for, you know, um, uh, reward is higher, but the risk is higher as well. This is developing a warehouse without having a tenant, hoping that maybe Amazon or someone like Amazon will take it and hoping that they'll pay not the rent as it is now, but the rent as it will be by the time the warehouse finishes. And the problem with the market at the moment is is too much of this happening. Um, but, you know, once again, the, on the tailwind side, the warehouse developers will still point to the fact that even with that speculative development happening and even with Amazon taking less space, vacancy rate is around 1.2%, which is the lowest it's ever been. And to give you an idea of when the market was in the real doldrums, in, in 2008, it was it was around 10%. So we'd have to have take up completely fall off a cliff and speculative development go wild for the market to be in real trouble. But it is certainly a, it's it's a it's a decent health check. I think Amazon's profit warning and an argument that you know the party can't last forever. So maybe we might see the market cool off rather than a bubble burst. I suppose. Yeah, I think yeah, as you say, the the Amazon's certainly not going anywhere. Neither are its. I drove past its Milton Keynes warehouse the other day for the first time, actually. You know, it takes about five minutes to drive past, doesn't it? It's so big. Um, so, yeah, but plenty of food for thought there. Plenty of food for thought, I think, for the whole the whole market at the moment, really. You know, as today's discussion showed, there's a lot of uh, interesting conversations going on when, when perhaps the tide starts to go out in some areas. Um, so that's all we've got time for. Thank you very much uh, to Mitchell, to Alex and to Julian. Uh, and thanks to you to uh, the listeners for tuning in. And we will uh, speak to you again next week. The Companies and Market Show was edited and produced by me, John Rogers. And if you've liked what you heard, please do head on over to the iTunes store and give us a rating and review. We'd love to hear some of your feedback. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.